the risk of division, of exploitation, of marginalization, dehumanization, and domination. It's always present, but it's present in us as people, not in the data themselves. What is our role in the planning of the social aspect of the city? Very essential to modernization is that common people have basic services. They won't tell us what is what is right or what is just, and I think we have to engage with philosophy to do that. Welcome back to Planning Ideas That Matter, a podcast exploring how the field and practice of urban planning are evolving with and responding to the increasing influence of big data and analysis of that data. Right, and just as a reminder, for the purposes of these episodes, we are using urban science to describe the confluence of urban planning and computer science. In the past two episodes, we spoke with professors Bish Samuel and Caesar McDowell. Both Bish and Caesar delved into a more complex and nuanced conceptualization of urban planning, directing our attention back towards us. They explored how we, as the analysts, the dreamers, and the intervention crafters, are important elements of any narrative around urban science. And we can't forget society. Caesar highlighted how the limitations of urban science can easily be blinded to, but really revolve around our ability as a society to empathize and to engage in meaningful conversations around complex disputes. If you hadn't had a chance to listen to our previous episodes, we highly recommend you go back to the beginning, since they provided the foundations for today's episode. Today we are joined by Justin Steele. Justin is a professor of law and urban planning at DUSP and is interested in the spatial dimensions of inequality, particularly the intersection of urban policy and civil rights law. And as we've done for all of our guests so far, we asked Justin to start our conversation by defining urban planning. Yeah, I think that's a great question and one that uh, has has vexed generations of planning students. Um, so I'll take my hand at it. I think, I think of it first as the study of the growth and functioning of cities and the societies within cities at a very fundamental level. And I think second, based on that study of the growth and functioning of cities and the societies within them, it's the practice of promoting deliberative democracy and engaged citizenship by supporting the ability of residents to participate in shaping their physical and social environment. I think particularly supporting the participation and leadership of those who are vulnerable or otherwise marginalized on the basis of class or race or gender, disability or other durable categories of inequality, and those on the economic and political margins, because I think oftentimes those individuals don't have as much of a role in shaping the city. And so I think that's an important role for what urban planners do is make sure that there is a more equal participation in shaping cities. This sounds a lot like what Caesar said in terms of what or who planners should really be thinking about for their work. So if you're trying to bring the intelligences that people have into an ideation process, then you have to pay attention to the fact that there are multiple ways people can express their ideation. Right? And that's a design problem. And that one, that kind of multiple forms of expression, is only one of them. And I think the core one being really designing for the margins, that even if you know what conversation you're in, First, you have to design it so it works for people who are most marginalized by the issue in society. So when thinking about the questions of what planners need to be asking around public interventions, Justin seems to share some skepticism about the ways data can be useful in addressing the problems of equity. Especially considering the context in which most data is currently collected. I think given that our, our current market structure 
encourages real estate developers and urban development broadly to prioritize profit, I think that it's important for planners to approach all of these questions with their eye on justice and equity, what's good for the public and especially those of us among the public who are vulnerable. Given that they're working from data that comes from the existing world and the existing world is one that is riven with disparate impacts on the basis of race, the algorithms perpetuate those disparate impacts. So what can we do with the data that we're now using as a foundational aspect of urban science in order to better promote justice, equity, and better outcomes for marginalized populations? I think that there's a lot of room for states and municipalities to require, on a very basic level, require that a lot of the data that's being used to be made publicly accessible. And so cities have made a lot of advances in the past few years in terms of their open data platforms. But I think it would be important for cities to think about the ways that they can extend that to some of the other data that they're relying on or the private vendors are relying on to make decisions and to require that that also be made publicly accessible. So I think that's the first piece and that's the most basic piece. And I think the more challenging and more important piece is democratizing the ability to analyze that data. And I think it's important that we recognize that all of us have a right to create knowledge and be a part of of that knowledge creation process, and that that's really a a very basic aspect of, of citizenship in the contemporary era. And so I think that our educational institutions broadly should be making sure that people have the skills to access data and work with it and analyze it and interpret it. And I think as as planning educators, it's important for for us as professors to make sure that our students who go out and become practicing planners also see that as part of their responsibility of instead of public engagement sessions where planners go out and stand in front of an easel and point at some drawings and some figures and some charts and say this is what the world is, of engaging with people in a more meaningful way of saying this is what the data is, this is where it's accessible to you, and potentially creating some workshops that you know help people understand how can they how can they download that data? How can they ask questions that are on their mind and see whether the data has the capacity to answer those questions? And if not, why not? And what does that tell planners and city officials about what other data should be gathered? And if it does have the capacity to answer those questions, helping people gather some of the basic skills to be able to do that so that people can really be a part of these conversations instead of just presented with some charts and told that this is the way the world is, regardless of whether that fits with their lived experience of it or not. Just to revisit that, Justin is focusing on the details of defining how public engagement needs to be inclusive and be conscious of the context in which they're occurring. And he's outlining how deeply important the process of democratizing data can be from an intervention-oriented point of view. He's saying that the public should directly engage with the data it's generated and really scrutinize its value and legitimacy based on personal lived experiences. So by modifying and monitoring our process, rather than focusing on the technologies we are deploying, we can increase the value of what is being collected. By producing more inclusive and representative data of the populations it's seeking to measure. Sometimes we see data and it doesn't fit with our lived experience, and that provokes really interesting questions about why not. So what is that telling us about the world that is different from the way we live it, and why is that the case? And then sometimes it also just tells us, well, where does that data come from? 
who's not included in that data. So, you know, just because it doesn't fit with our lived experience doesn't mean that it's not accurate. But I think it's really important to engage with all of those, all of those questions. So this is sounding like one of the aspects of data science that Caesar problematized for us in the last episode. You can only show what you can measure. And we know that we can't measure all that matters. And matter of fact, we probably can't measure the things that matter most. And so part of the issue with the data representation and data science is how do you balance out what we know how to measure versus what we don't know how to measure and the equivalency of those two things in a conversation and putting those things on level playing fields in a conversation. Justin is taking this even one step further, suggesting that by democratizing access and the ability to analyze and manipulate data, the public might be better able to judge for themselves whether it's a useful representation. It's also deeply important to think about what it really means that data is not currently democratic in its processes of collection, creation, manipulation, really all the ways it's being used in data and urban sciences. Right. He talks about the ways we create and use data as being a fundamental part of the knowledge creation process and how agency within that process is a crucial aspect of citizenship in this day and age. Francis Bacon said, knowledge is power. And Michel Foucault said, yes, but really, power is knowledge. That power, uh, those with power, decide what questions are worth asking, what data is worth gathering, how that data is gathered, how it's analyzed, how it's interpreted. And that's usually done with particular ends. You know, and so there's many ways in which the kind of systematic gathering of data science has been used to divide, control, keep people unequal. But I don't think that's inherent to data or data gathering or data analysis, but I think that is a reality of the fact that data is not free from power or from politics. And when we begin to think about contributing knowledge, as part of a civic participation and as a manifestation of power, the question that our guests have been asking throughout this series arises once more. How can we ensure that this knowledge creation, this ability to create and wield power, is afforded justly and will produce equitable results? Access to more data has the potential to help us better understand our cities, better understand equity in our cities, and I think democratizing access to that data and the ability to analyze it creates room for us to create more just cities. But I think that the data alone won't do that. The data can tell us more about how cities work, about who's getting access to what or not, but it doesn't tell us anything about how cities should be, about what is just or what's right or what's not right. And so I think that for that, it's one of the things that I appreciate most about urban planning is that it's a very interdisciplinary field. And so I think we have to continue to recognize the importance of all of these various disciplines and, and different ways of knowing that the, the exercise of, of philosophy and the logic of philosophy is a really important aspect of urban planning and urban decision making. And also the experience of art and literature and spirituality are also important parts of how we experience the city and live in the city that we also have to value as well. And so I think that actually the rise of 
of more access to data and an emphasis on urban science makes it just as important to value the other other ways of knowing and the other aspects of decision making because data won't tell us, as I said before, data won't tell us what is right or what is just. And I think we have to engage with philosophy to do that. It also won't necessarily tell us what's politically feasible. So I think we have to engage with some of the knowledge from political science and from history about what is feasible and when and how. And it won't tell us what's beautiful or not, which is obviously a very subjective decision. But I think we can learn a lot from art and architecture about how we perceive beauty and what makes spaces the kind of spaces that bring us joy. And so that's one of the beautiful things about urban planning, I think, is that it does engage with all of these fields, with history and philosophy and political science and art and literature, and that we have to draw even those other ways of knowing and gathering data and, and representing knowledge and hold those just as, as dear and as, as valuable as data becomes seemingly more predominant. How does urban planning come together to actually advocate for change when there's such a wide variety in our definition of justice? Cities at their best are spaces where people come together and interact on, on more equal terms. We learn from our, our differences. We understand the collective nature of our kind of living on earth and, and in cities and the importance of our, our shared commitment to each other and to the public institutions that create opportunity for us all. And so I think the worst case scenario is where private data and private profit undermine that capacity for collective action and interaction and a shared sense of, of what is the commonwealth and the common good. Ideally, the development of our city should not be the limited province of experts in urban planning, but urban planners should be facilitating a more equal and deliberative process about how to make our cities meet the needs of our residents with a strong focus on equity. Um, I think democracy alone, it's, it's necessary but not sufficient. You know, democratic participation often leads to really unequal outcomes. And so I think you know, the role of planners is not only to facilitate democratic participation, but it is in part to facilitate democratic participation informed by the experience that planners have in thinking about the rules and the policies and the infrastructure that can create a context for human flourishing and to do all of that with a with a clear focus on enhancing equity. So if we're taking into account all these ways of knowing, highlighting the importance of equalizing its many forms and implementation, what then is the true goal of an urban planner's intervention? It's sounding like a focus on equity and justice is key, but there's a higher goal here that I don't think we've discussed all that much on this show yet. I guess one of those difficult questions is how do we create urban contexts that enable people to fulfill their potential, to experience joy in their everyday life in cities. I find cities very joyful myself, so I guess that's part of what I'm drawing on. I have a, a young daughter, and so I think traveling through the city with her also reminds me how what joyful places cities can be. And I think, you know, we see construction and we think, oh, noise, dust, traffic, congestion. And she sees construction sites and says, wow. You know, she's really excited to see old buildings coming down and new buildings going up. And the process of that construction is really a remarkable thing for anyone to see. All of these things are just small examples of things that I think can bring us joy that I think is really one of the things that I hope for 
as a, as a planning educator to ensure that my students feel not only the joy of learning, but also the joy of empowering others to create an urban experience that is more fulfilling and more joyful. Thanks to the Department of Urban Studies and Planning and Professor Justin Steele for coming in and talking with us. If you enjoyed these conversations about the theories of justice and the ways that planners can craft interventions, be sure to check out The Move, available wherever you find your podcasts. We hope you enjoyed this series on the politics, philosophy, and policy of planning. Check back soon for our next episodes, where we'll be wrapping up this series. We'll have guests Professor Carlo Ratti and Gabriella Carolina, providing an overview of our entire series. Thanks again for listening. Bye.